So Matthew 26 is following right on the hills of some very interesting stuff going on in Matthew, right? Matthew 24, Jesus, or Matthew 23, the whole chapter, Jesus just blistered the Pharisees. I mean, there is no harsher criticism offered to the Pharisees by Jesus than in Matthew 23. He comes at them both fists. If he had guns, he'd have all, uh, he'd had all, all guns blazing as he rides into the Pharisees. Uh, he even says it this way in Matthew 23. He says uh, in verse 34, Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute uh, you from city to city, so that upon you you, uh, uh, you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechai, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." So Jesus is like, he's, he's, not, he's not accusing them of murder. He's just flat out just saying, you are murderers. Like every prophet of God that could be sent to you has been sent. Uh, the disciples kind of took Jesus under the armpits and said, okay, you're going to get us killed. You're going to get you killed and everybody else killed. So they, they, they take him out of Jerusalem. And in Matthew 24 and 25 uh, is kind of this emotional um, like settling for Jesus. He starts off by telling them that God's done with this place. He's going he's gonna to destroy Jerusalem. He's going to tear it literally brick from brick. We're going to destroy it all the way down to the mortar. There's going to be nothing left. And if it happens in, in, uh, in the wintertime that this happens, sorry for you, right? If you've got babies, sorry. If, you got, if you're on top of the roof of your house, hop down. Don't even go inside and grab a, a sandwich for the road. Get out of Dodge if you see this stuff coming. Come on in. Um, and then in Matthew 25, he gives a series of parables of teaching to his disciples specifically. He is trying to draw them back in to, um, to this concept of you've got to follow me and you've got to stay ready. I taught them a lot about the end times. They must have had a lot of question marks on their face because Jesus told them like four or five parables in a row going, hey, this is how the end's going to be. It, he, he said it's like a it's like a like a wedding where ten virgins went out to wait for the bridegroom, but only half of them took enough oil. And in the night when the bridegroom arrived, they were left out in the cold and they were not allowed to come in. And then he told a story about a a, a, a master leaving three of his servants. He said, "I'm going to leave you ten, five, and one and one piece of property." And he came back and. One guy had doubled, the second guy had doubled, the third guy had buried his in the sand, and uh, the master said, you're a wicked servant, took away and threw him into, to, well, he says, I'm, I'm going to throw you into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that is what? Yeah, Jesus used that to refer to hell at different times. So Jesus was trying to say, look, I need you to uh, take what I've given you, I need you to work hard at it, trust that I'm coming back, and I'm going to help you be fruitful in your life. And when I come back, you'll be even more fruitful in that kingdom to come. And so Jesus is just helping them process what he's telling them. But they're still not getting it just yet. We're about 48 hours from the cross, okay, in this timeline. And in chapter 26, verse 1, it says this. When Jesus had finished all of these words... <laughs> Okay? So all these parables, all these teaching, all this, uh, you know. Have you ever, have you ever uh, taken your kids to a funeral? 
like your little kids, maybe it's their first or second funeral, and you're trying to prep them for what they're about to see and experience. It's a cultural phenomenon. You're going to see someone whose body is there, but their life is gone, and they're in a very ornate coffin, and they don't really know how to process. Have you, do y'all remember doing that? Have you ever done that before? Well, I think it, this feels very much like this to me, is Jesus is prepping them for something, um, and he's like, look, I need you to get on board with me. This is going to be really weird, uh, but it's happening. And, uh, and so he says in verse 2, you know that after two, that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man, which is a title he had taken upon himself throughout Matthew, is to be handed over for crucifixion. Now let's pause just for a second and, and be reminded of what exactly is going on with this crucifixion, crucifixion gig. Did any of y'all happen to wear cross jewelry today? Anybody? Cross earrings, belly button rings, <laughs> necklaces, anything like that? Huh? Your belly button ring is nose ring. your nose ring. Okay. Uh, so anybody else have cross jewelry? Okay. All right. Well, that's surprising. No rappers in here or athletes. Um, and uh, it seems like that's, that's pervasive. Uh, um, so it, it's, it's a common thing. It's a common trend to see crosses everywhere within a religious context, but in our culture, even outside of the religious context, right? Have y'all seen that before? Um, so we've kind of lost the mentality of what the crucifixion really is. The crucifixion was invented by the Phoenicians, and, and, uh, and then it was mastered by the Romans. Um, there are two types of crosses, and, and you may see different, different groups of people like to, to look at it different ways. Uh, the, the, the traditional cross, which is what we, we think of, right? Um, but there is another cross uh, that the Romans commonly used, which was just the, more like a capital T. Uh, we don't know what Jesus was hung on, but one of those. But it was designed for maximum excruciating pain. Y'all recall that Jesus died very quickly in his crucifixion, and that surprised the Romans. Uh, that was because this, this type of punishment wasn't designed like our modern-day um, uh, capital punishment where we inject something or we flip a switch or we firing squad. Or it's, it was our, our techniques of capital punishment, if we utilize them, are very short, right? In this case, they wanted maximum exposure and maximum pain. So if they could keep somebody on the cross for a month, they would. Can you imagine that? Um, there, there, is, there is historical evidence of days and days and days and weeks on end crucifixions occurring where they just kept. Um, this is one of the reasons why uh, they offer Jesus something to drink in the midst of it. They don't want you to die of de dehydration. Isn't that sweet? They want you to die on excruciating pain. So Jesus is saying, hey, we're getting close to this. I'm going to be crucified. And the disciples are still very much thinking Jesus is setting up an earthly kingdom. So it's not, these, these seem to be two contradictory truths that are going on here. So Jesus says in verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Now, as a, as a kind of a parallel truth, right? Close that scene, open another scene. The chief priest and the elders of the people. Now, the chief priest would have been the high priest and those who cared for him. High priest in Jesus' day was not a religious position. It was a political position. It was one you paid for. It was if you, 
if you could come scrounge up enough dough and cash and bribe the Romans, you would be named um, a high priest. This is not too uncommon that how we move around dictatorships to this day. Um, uh, it's not uncommon. I think of, in particular, North Korea. The grandson of the first dictator is the leader. He got it from his father who got it from his father. And if it doesn't all fall apart, and I pray constantly for the, free, the religious freedom of North Korea, but if it doesn't all fall apart in the next 20 or 30 years, uh, or however long this guy lives, it will fall to his child. And the dictatorship will continue on to the family. We're told here uh, that the, high, the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Ananias, who was the previous high priest. Huh, imagine that. Political appointees being within the family. I think we got a name for that, don't we? All right, nepotism. And this was very common, even in Jesus' day. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they were saying, don't do it during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Jerusalem swelled from a town of maybe 100 150,000 to over millions over the Passover holiday. And they were religiously fervent. They were really excited about being there. And you cannot get that many people together without there being some emotional outpouring somewhere. Has anybody ever been to Jerusalem? Okay. Uh, one of the things that they do when they talk to you about going specifically to the Temple Mount area, which is a Muslim-controlled sector of <laughs> Jerusalem, up on the Temple Mount, where, the, where Solomon's temple existed during Jesus' day, is a Muslim mosque called the Dome of the Rock. It's a very popular uh, picture of this mosque with a golden dome at the top. And every time they take Christians up there, they will say to them, Sir, when we get up there, do not, do not start singing. Do not start praying out loud, Right? You will cause a riot up there, and there will be a Muslim on Christian on Jew riot. And they will arrest you, and they will, it will not be pretty. And, but lo and behold, some really, really excited American evangelicals will get up there about once every six or seven months and just be moved by the Spirit and start singing about amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, right? And that is not well received up there on the rock by the Jews or the Muslims, and, uh, and oftentimes, bad things can happen. The police rush in and, and whatnot. They are trying to, the chief priests are trying to prevent that same kind of riot from happening. They know Jesus is popular among the people. They know Jesus can do great things. They've seen it. They've witnessed it. But they hate him for it. And uh, they've got to find a way to do it secretly. If Jesus will just go away, right? It's kind of one of these top secret CIA, MI6, like if they can just go away privately, quietly, no one will ask any questions, we got this in the bag. Uh, verse 6. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany, so we have now we have a different scene. So we've got some things going on. Jesus is closing out the conversation with his disciples. Uh, we, we've got some intel that over in Jerusalem, they're trying to do something sneaky against Jesus. But in chapter uh, 26, verse 6, we're told that Jesus is in Bethany for dinner. This is an evening meal. Now, who lives in Bethany? Well, first off, where is Bethany? Anybody? Yeah, it's about two miles away from Jerusalem, over the Mount of Olives, and into this little community of Pearl Brandon. Bethany, Bethpage, same thing. They're just two communities right there together, about two miles away from Jerusalem. Jesus would, 
was he was Airbnb uh, with Mary and Martha uh, over there for about probably two weeks before the Passover meal. And every morning he'd wake up, walk to Jerusalem, cause trouble, <laughs> and then walk back over the garden of uh, to the garden uh, the garden of Gethsemane, past it up to the Mount of Olives to Bethany every day. Okay. <laughs> And so we're told here that Jesus was in Bethany. This is where he was staying. And he was at the home of Simon the leper. Anybody got a problem with that? All the Jews had a problem with Simon the leper. So uh, the chances of Simon being an active leper here is like 0%. How do you get a, na- a nickname like Simon the leper? Yes, right? Probably someone who Jesus had healed. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that, okay? And, uh, and so Simon the leper perhaps is someone Jesus has healed, and he's not a leper anymore because he's in his home, right? You couldn't have leprosy. And so I'm, I'm, this is my guess, but I'm guessing he was someone Jesus had had a relationship with. And a woman came to Jesus with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Now, we've got a couple of problems with this story because Matthew's not the only one that tells us that this happened. John also tells us that this happened, except for he names the woman as who? Mary, sister of Martha. And, and the problem gets a little more problematic because it says that she anointed not his head, but his feet with very costly nard. Now, I'm not going to ask you gentlemen or ladies, what you make in a year, um, but take your entire household annual salary. You got that number in your head? Y'all did taxes back in April? Y'all did that right? Take that number and go make one expenditure of your entire annual salary and put that on the shelf in your wife's perfume uh, case. This is a very expensive, very costly, very rare form of of oil. What does that tell us about Mary and Martha? They have money, okay? Um, Perhaps one of the reasons why um, Jesus is so invested in them is because they've become so invested in him. They supported the ministry of Jesus financially, and they moved about Galilee and Jerusalem. Good morning. Come on in. Saved your seat. Um, and, uh, And so... Uh, what Mary is about to do is an incredibly expensive thing, all right? Now, I, I don't know how we could even parse this out, but uh, anybody drive here in a fancy F-150, uh, 1500? I wouldn't say Dodge, but I don't like Dodges. All right, anybody drive a big truck? You got the big truck? I got an F-150. Okay, you got your keys on you? Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> hey, is it a key? Yeah, yeah. It's fine. It's fine. I, I, don't, I don't need the keys, just the code. Uh, is it a King Ranch Platinum Limited? Uh, Raptor. Ra- perfect. Oh. Um, <laughs> I just need you to, if you'll just, can you just title it over to me real quick? Okay. And, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to go, like, just drive the Raptor off into a ditch and leave it there. Is that cool with you? That, that is what, in essence, the disciples felt like just happened. Like some very wealthy benefactors of Jesus just leaned into Jesus with this incredibly 
uncomfortably inappropriate gift in front of everybody. Let's watch. A woman came to Jesus with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head. The assumption would be if she poured it on his head, where would it eventually get? To his feet. So do we have a problem here? Not necessarily. You've got two people telling the same story. Where is, when John tells his story, he's telling it from his memory banks. Where do we know that John sat on the night of the Passover meal? To Jesus's, he leaned upon Jesus's breast. He's on Jesus's right. Why, why is he sitting there? What did, what did John himself call himself? Yeah, I'm the beloved, I'm the favorite. Where is the assumption that John is at this meal? Same place. He's sitting, leaning kind of, and they reclined, right? So Matthew, who's sitting a little further into the cheap seats, right? He's telling the story, and this woman, who John says is Mary, cracks it over Jesus' head, and it rolls down Jesus' head, down his arm, and to his, where who is? John's like, man, I got this stuff on me. I'm going to smell like a woman the rest of the week, right? Um, so this is not a problem, but this is what happened. And check out the, the disciples get indignant. Verse 8, the disciples were indignant when they saw this, and they said, why this waste? John gives more detail. Which disciple said it was a waste? Judas. Judas. I, look, have y'all ever had, no, y'all don't have this problem. Y'all love your family as if they are your closest, uh, dearest people in your life. Y'all have no sibling rivalries, right? None, right? You don't look at your fellow brother or sister biologically and think, how did we come out of the same people? Like, what is wrong with you? Like, I, how did I get here and you are still so weird, right? Y'all don't have that problem? Okay, no, none of us do. Uh, well, uh, the disciples have the same thing. Uh, John was like, look, we saw all the same things Judas saw. I hate that guy. <laughs> you read John, and you cannot escape the fact that every chance he can dig on Judas, he digs on him, all right? So he'll say, like, here's a list of the disciples that Jesus picked out of the crowd at the beginning of his ministry. Uh, Peter, James, John, Andrew, blah, 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 Judas, which we all hated, uh, or Judas, the, that, one who the one who portrayed Jesus. You know, never let them forget that time they ruined Thanksgiving, right? Um, John did not like Judas. Matthew was being a little more uh, uh, benevolent, and he just said the disciples had some, had some thoughts, right? Now, why do you think Matthew had thoughts? Why do you think Matthew didn't out Judas? What was Judas's function within the 12? Yeah, what's, what's Matthew's job? We, are, we have two men prone to count money. Right? Matthew probably had a, a, an affinity for Judas. He's like, hey, did you count that twice? Or did you get a receipt for that? Okay, cool. Uh, so that's kind of how that was working. But verse 8, the disciples were indignant when they saw this, and they said, why is there such waste? Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you don't always have uh, you don't always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it in, to prepare me for burial. Now <clears throat> that's an interesting statement right there, because the disciples are still struggling with this idea that Jesus is going to die. 
He said the motive of this woman was to prepare me for burial. What did that intone that Mary knew? She knew it was coming. I think Mary and Jesus had a kinship that transcended the normal kind of... Uh, the, do you have that one friend that, like, they know your thoughts? You can look them at them across the table or across the church house, and, and the preacher will say something, and you look over at your friend, and you're like, I got it. I heard it, right? Um, and uh, they're talking about... We know who she's talking about. All right, um, I think, I think Jesus and Mary had a, a next-level kind of kinship, much like Jesus and John did, right? Jesus was closer emotionally to his, some of his disciples than he was with others. There shouldn't be a problem with us understanding that. But Mary, I think Mary got this. I think Mary and Jesus had a close relationship um, because what, where do we find Mary at times? What, what, how was she described over in other Gospels? Sitting at his feet. All right, so that's Jewish code for learning from the teacher, okay? So in, 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 the, in the lingo, you guys are sitting at my feet, right? That is to say that you are learning from me. So when Jesus says, she's sitting at my feet, the only people who could do that were men. And all of a sudden, we have a woman learning what the men are learning. And it made Martha very uncomfortable. Y'all remember that story? And, and she's like, Jesus, tell Mary to get away from the boys and come in here and be with the women like she's supposed to be. And what did Jesus say? Mm-mm. She's chosen the better portion. All right? So Mary and Jesus are very, very close. Matthew doesn't name her. John does. All right? Um, verse 12 when she poured this perfume on me, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done here will be spoken of in the memory of her. This is a beautiful gift from Jesus. I think this is why John mentioned her by name. Matthew didn't. John did. And I think John, when he wrote John 12, he was like, nope. Jesus said wherever the gospel's preached, her name will be honored. We're going to lift up Mary's name. And, uh, and so that's that. Then one of the twelve, whose name is Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. Okay? So this is kind of, again, this is a, a parallel story. This is, I think, something that probably happened a couple days prior. I don't think this is chronologically in line. If we were watching this on TV, you would have that funky 1980s, 1990 Saved by the Bell fade out and, like, cloudy picture where Judas is sneaking off, right? And, uh, and he says, um, so... He went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me to betray Jesus to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver. We don't have time to look at this, but there's an incredible passage in Zechariah 11. Uh, I would encourage you to go look and read. It is a absolute Old Testament prophetic projection of what's happening right here. And there's another really, really interesting parallel story about what Jesus will do when he shows up in his power. Uh, that's Zechariah 11. But from then on, Judas began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus, which is, is why I think this was prior to, right? So we have this story where Judas is not always uh, good with money. He's not been good, uh, but now he's actively looking for the weakness in what Jesus' patterns are to expose him and get him arrested, but do it in a, what was the, what was the word we used back in chapter 26, verse 2 or 3? 
or verse 5? Nope, well, all right. Yeah, verse 4. They plotted together to seize Jesus by what? Stealth, right? So they're, they've got an inside man now. They've got a mole. And so Ju- Judas is specifically looking for spots where Jesus won't be around a lot of people. Where will that be? Hmm, where will that be? Where are some places that Jesus may be away from the crowds during the Passover meal in the next coming days? Let's figure it out. Verse 17, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, I think that what's about to happen happened about a week ago when Jesus came in on the triumphal entry uh, on, the, on the cold. Okay? Again, this is part of a flashback. And they were like, all right, we've got to prepare a place. We've got we to do this thing. We've got to go find the place to have the, the Last Supper. Um, uh, State fans, Ole Miss fans in the room? Yeah. Have you ever tried to buy a hotel the weekend of a big game? You don't. You don't. Why not? They are not available. And if they are available, can you afford them? No. No, you cannot. So, or you don't want it. Or you don't, no, you don't want it. You do not want it or you can't afford it. Either which way, we are done with it. Uh, so Passover happens every year. We have to have a place to prepare it. I think Jesus knew this was going to happen. This was all set up from Jesus. I know some people think this is miraculous. If that's your opinion, that's fine. I can go with that too. I am more inclined to believe this is something that Jesus had set up beforehand. I believe that uh, the writer Mark, the Gospel of Mark, he was about uh, 7 to 10 years old at this time. His mother had a house with an upper room. It is where the disciples hung out after Jesus was crucified. It's where they hid out. Why are they hiding out there? Because they're familiar with it. Mark's mother was a follower of Jesus. I think this was the place where Jesus had the Last Supper, and he had prepped this place previously. And so they were like, hey, Jesus, what do you want us to do about this? Jesus had already had this planned out. And it says here, uh, it says, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says to, uh, says to you, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared uh, the Passover. In the, in the other gospels, it says that a man carrying a water pitcher, okay, uh, this was not a super common thing. Women were the one that carried the water pitcher. How would the disciples know what Jesus meant? He set it up beforehand. He said, have, have one of the kids, one of the boys, stand out there. I'm going to send them out here. And about Tuesday around noon, send them out to the, to the corner with the water pitcher. My disciples will come by. Just, you know, I couldn't drop a Google pen. Just follow the kid, right? I think this was part of Jesus' setup. But the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Um, Now, as the evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. Now, uh, again, we've already kind of established tables are low, and all the people, the participants are kind of leaning on their left hand. They would eat with their right. And what I'm about to show you here is, uh, up here on the board, is what happens during um, uh, during the Passover, or what the Jews, our Jewish friends, call the Seder, S-E-D-E-R, the Seder meal. Uh, and this is a whole process. Um, we don't do anything like this in our culture that I'm aware of. 
Like each of you does Christmas or Thanksgiving according to your specific family traditions. Now you may have very specific family traditions. Mine does on Thanksgiving, we all get up, my mother and my grandmother and the women get up incredibly early and go start cooking uh, all the food. I get up and drive to the same convenience store that I drove to my grandfather with in 1980 whatever, and we buy a big fat newspaper with all the Black Friday sales in it. And we come back and watch the Macy's Day Parade and any football that's on TV with all the Black Friday papers laid out on the floor. And I, to this day, this still happens, okay? Uh, though the Black Friday deals have gotten really pitiful these days. Um, and we lay it all out. And then my mother says we're going to have lunch in an hour, and three hours later we have lunch. It happens this way. Uh, my, my mother will say, hey, go to Kroger and get cherries or whipped cream or pickles or whatever else that we forgot. And I run to Kroger, and I say to my mother, uh, text it to me. I'll get everything you text to me. And I come back, and she says, did you get this? I said, did you text it to me? And she says, no. And I said, then I didn't get it. But I told you, but you didn't text me. And that happens every year. Every year, it's our tradition. And then we have our meal. At some point in the evening, my grandmother takes the leftover mashed potatoes and makes little mashed potato pancakes and fries them in a skillet, and then she eats them because none of us do, and she talks about, <laughs> she talks about how good they are, right? Y'all have similar traditions, right? You got your own family. We don't have these kind of traditions in, Amer in Western culture. I wish we did. It'd be something beautiful to, to be a part of. But everyone did the Passover the same way. It didn't matter if it was your house or your house. Y'all were doing it the same pattern everywhere else in the city. This is what's happening. And they would have a plate with different things. I only have three things here on my drawn plate. But there were multiple things on the plate. And then there would be four cups of wine sat in front of you. Four. Not one, not two, not three. There would be four. Okay. This is going to blow some of y'all's mind. I can tell. It's going to be good for you. All right? Now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, now that's important, um, in the, the opening section of this, I'm going to have to, like, scooch in on this picture I have on the screen here because I can barely read it. Will it do it? Yeah. Uh, you would come in, and you would begin the Seder meal or the Passover meal, uh, and you would drink the first cup of wine, and you would say a prayer based off of Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. I'm going to turn that quickly. You don't have to, but Exodus chapter 6 is of, of significant note for the Passover meal. Okay, There are four prayers that are going to be prayed, one over each cup of wine. Chapter 6, verse 6 says this, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. And I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the burden of the Egyptians. The first cup of wine was called the cup of sanctification or called out once, where God pulled out the, the Israelites from the Egyptians. And they would drink their cup of wine, okay, there it is. So they would drink their cup of wine. So, boom. So, first cup is empty. Woo! All right? Things are getting, getting better already. Right? We've drunk the whole cup. So now we have one cup drunk. Uh, and then they would wash their hands, and they would recite this blessing uh, as a way of purifying themselves. 
and then they would, would say a blessing of prayer over God's sanctification of who they were as a people of God. Okay? Uh, so, after that, they would then go to the plate, and they would pick up these bitter herbs, right? Um, so, it says here salt water, but it was oftentimes vinegar. And they would take uh, uh, these bitter, like either lettuce or... Uh, I wouldn't say cilantro, but like something like that, like a herb, and they would dip it in vinegar or salt water, and then they would eat it. All right, how's that taste? Why are you making that face? <laughs> Just thinking of vinegar makes me kind of... Yeah, yeah. What, what does vinegar do when, you, what, what it do when it hits your senses? Yeah, this was intentional. They are, they're now going to talk about how God brought them through the bitterness of the wilderness of the 40 days of wandering, okay? And so, all right, so now, so everything on the plate has something going on there. So we've tasted the bitterness, all right? And it's dipped in vinegar or salt water, all right? Then we're gonna go up here, and there's three pieces of bread, uh, unleavened bread, sitting on the plate. And, uh, and, and uh, at some point, we've already eaten the first part. This next part, they take the middle piece <coughs> of bread, and they break it, and they eat a little piece of it, okay? But when they break it, it breaks in two. They take the small part and eat it, and they take the bigger part, and they hide it for later. This will have some really interesting implications, because check what happens. Being deeply, or, or uh, um, verse 21, as they were eating, now this is indicating, so they've done the salt and vinegar, right? Uh, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, after being deep and being deeply grieved, they each one began to ask Jesus, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dips his hand with me into the bowl is the one who will betray me. Now, sitting over beside Jesus is a guy named Judas, and this is the bowl that he is referring to. It is a bowl of, uh, uh, it's here in this thing, but it's made up of like, like dates and raisins and pineapple or, or uh, pears and apples all mixed in together. So it's kind of this weird kind of sweet, bittersweet concoction. And there were all these plates all around. The fact that they were sharing meant that they were sitting close to each other. So somehow Jesus, Judas is sitting next to Jesus, and they're all asking Jesus after he's made this accusation, one of you in this room will accuse me, will, will, will betray me. And they were just clutch their pearls. <gasps> And they're like, it's not me. It's not me. It's not me. And, and Peter must have like flicked John, who's sitting right next to Jesus, and goes, ask him who it is. And Jesus turns to John. This is not to the whole group. He makes this comment here. He who dips his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. Now, why do I say that? If all of y'all love me and are saying you will die for me, and then I say, the person I'm going to dip this in and give it to is going to betray me. And then I dip it and I hand it to Judas. What's the response of everybody else in the room? He's fixing to have me murdered. What are you going to do? You're going to take him out. Cap him in the knee before he can get to the door. We're going to tackle him. We're going to, yeah, he got I me. Mean, he gone. This is easy. This is why there's no way Jesus said this to the whole crowd, Right? He said this to one, to one person, John, right, I think, and he whispered it. Because it's, we're in a loud, it's, 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 it's a festival meal. Like, we're talking, we're having a good time. We've got at least one, 
one glass of wine in us, at least, right? We might maybe even pregame this. You know, we don't even know. We don't know how they showed up, uh, which was very common in that day. I know you're laughing, but it was very common in that day to show up uh, really festive. Um, he says, he who dips his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. And the Son of Man is, is to go, just as it is written, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. I would have been, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying Jesus, remember, because he's looking for an opportune time to betray Jesus, uh, he says, surely it's not I. Notice what he says. What does he call Jesus? Now notice what the other disciples in verse 22 called him. Surely not I, Lord. What does he say? Surely not I, Rabbi. What is he doing emotionally? He's distancing himself. You're not my Lord anymore, but you are a good teacher, right? Um, and so he does this. And, he, and Judas asks, surely it's not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. So this is a private kind of conversation that's happening, okay? Now, this happened just after the second cup, okay? Now, this is the second cup of wine is based off this, the cup of deliverance. They would have had a prayer where they said, Lord, we thank you for delivering us, and they would have had a, a portion of, of, of lamb over here, okay? This was the roasted meat. All along, there's these big stories being told. This is the longest portion of the meal, the largest part of the story. It's a long chapter in the book, so to speak. And they have this, and they drink their second cup of wine. And Jesus says to Judas, you've said it yourself. In John's account, he says, what you must do, y'all recall? Do it quickly. Now, if you didn't know the context of a conversation, but you saw me turn to somebody who you know is the bookkeeper, he's the treasurer, and I say to you, as we're having a meal and we've just finished our second cup of wine, and I say, hey, what do you got to do? Go do quickly. What might you be thinking? And think, think sweetly. Does he know they're missing something for the meal? They may be missing something for the meal. He's the one that controls the checkbook. Go buy it. Like, we got, we're, we go get more wine. Go get more bitter herbs. Ugh, right? Whatever. We run, we've run out of crackers. Go get something. You know, we've got good ice. So perhaps that's what the disciples are thinking. They certainly aren't thinking that J Judas is about to betray Jesus because, again, he walked out of the room without 14 knives stuck in the back of his neck, right? They thought he was just going to do, take care of business. Now, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. That is that section, okay, uh, of the meal, and he broke it. This is the part where Jesus breaks the bread. He eats the smaller part and hides the bigger part. And that's the part of the meal, okay? And so now we've had our second cup of wine. So, so Judas doesn't appear to be in that room at this time. He broke it and he gave it to his disciples, and he said something. Take, eat, this is my body. Now, this is new information for them because we've been doing the Passover the same way for thousands of years. Whether it's at your house or your house, it's done the same way. And Jesus goes off script, and he says, take, eat, this is my body. Hold on. Jesus just changed something. It's been the same way for a long, long time, and now Jesus is changing things. What is Jesus doing? Now, what do you know? What do you know he's doing? 
He's instituting something new for a new community. What do we call this? The Lord's Supper. We still do this to this day where we take, uh, I, my personal opinion, I, when I do the Lord's Supper, I always take and I break the bread, right? Um, I, I think those little crackers when we eat and drink death upon ourselves, you know what I'm talking about? Those little freeze-dried nuggets of whatever they are. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I don't. that's not my personal favorite, okay? But I, I like the breaking of the matzah bread. I, I, again, when I lead it, that's how I typically do it. But he takes it and he breaks it. That was part of the normal custom. Jesus is not outside. What he did do is he said, this is my body. That's new. And they're like, mm, okay, all right. Jesus, you have liberty. You have poetic license. Do what you want. You're Jesus. You can do what you want. But Jesus does this. And he had taken a cup, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, drink all of you. Now, the third cup is the cup of redemption. Exodus chapter 6, you have been redeemed. So they drank the first cup, the cup of set-apartness, sanctification. The second part, the cup of deliverance. And now Jesus gives them the third cup, the cup of redemption. Number three. Ha-ha. So when you and I are taking the Lord's Supper... We are only thinking of one cup, right? But the Jews are thinking categorically of four. And Jesus says, take this cup. And what do we know he says? He says, the bread is my body. What does he say about this third cup? It's my blood. This is the cup of redemption. This is essentially what we're taking the third cup. Every single time you do the Lord's Supper, you're taking the cup of redemption. Okay? You follow me? So we have been redeemed by the... Blood of the Lamb. Y'all have sang that song before, right? So we've had the body, the bread, and we have the blood, the third cup, the cup of redemption. Now look what happens here. And when he had taken the cup and he gave thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the cup of redemption. I'm forgiving you of your sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with it in my, uh, in my Father's kingdom. What is he talking about? Because he just did something weird. You need to put yourself in the upper room when Jesus does this. He takes the third cup and says, This is my blood. Drink. It is for your redemption. It is the blood of the covenant. And then he puts down the cup and he picks up the fourth cup which is, are y'all ready for this? The cup of praise. In the, in the four-cup uh, celebration of the Seder or the Passover meal, the fourth cup was the cup that we closed out our dinner with. It was the cup of praise. And Jesus holds up the fourth cup and says, we're not going to drink this tonight. And he sets it back down. Look at verse 30. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You would close out the night by singing together. Jesus left out the fourth cup on the table. And he says, it is that cup that I will not drink of until when? They're drinking in paradise. What's going to happen in paradise? We'll all be there for what purpose? To praise God for sanctifying us, delivering us, and redeeming us. This cup here is still full of wine, metaphorically speaking. 
This is the cup that Jesus will not drink of. I will not drink of this until I come and we can praise together. So there, but this is completely uncommon, okay? This is way orthodox. We've never left the fourth cup full before. And Jesus goes out, verse, verse 31, and Jesus said to them, as they're walking out to the Mount of Olives, it's kind of a little hill. It's, you know, uh, not, far, not far away from where they are. It takes them probably about 30 minutes to walk there. You will all fall away because of me this very night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. That's Zechariah 13, 7, if you want to write that down. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. We have verifiable evidence that Jesus found Peter fishing, right? When, they, when Jesus was crucified and resurrected and then just disappeared for a couple days, we know that the disciples went back. We know the disciples went back to fishing in Galilee, in their hometown. And we know that Jesus went out and found Peter and John. Y'all remember that story? Okay. Uh, and so he says, I'll, I'll come find you. But Peter said to Jesus, even though all these others, what a jerk, by the way. Like, he's like, if all these other crackheads fall away, Jesus, I ain't. I'm your number one man. I don't care what all these other people do. Where is Judas, by the way? I don't care what the rest of these yahoos do. I will not fall away. Look, even though all these will fall away, I will never fall away. And Jesus said, truly I say to you this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to Jesus, I don't know, either in hushed tones, like he'd just been rebuked, or he got louder. I can go with either, right? Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. So we have this moment where they're walking up to the Mount of Olives about at the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus says, I just want you all to know, hey, uh, it's going to hurt my feelings. We're going we're gonna to make it all right, but you all are going to reject me and you are going to fail me. And they were like, mm-mm, nuh-uh, not, we'll have to die first. And then Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to talk about that next week in verse 36. But we have this scene where we've had these four cups. Three have been drunk. One has been left on the table. And over in the book of Mark, we're told that a little boy dressed in his pajamas followed them. I think that's, I think that's Mark writing himself into the story. you got a little seven, eight-year-old boy hiding in the bushes watching this scene play out. It's hilarious. We can point that out next week. Um, but Jesus is on the garden, uh, on the, on the garden of Gethsemane, at the Garden of Gethsemane. He is at the Mount of Olives, and we're going to start there next week in chapter 30, uh, verse 36.